Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I've got our list here um, from last week, and we'll get to that in just a second, but the first thing I've got to do to get it off my for those of you that are into sports ball things, do any of you call it sports ball things? Or does that mean, like, if you call it that, are you not into sports ball things? Anybody? I was just wondering. Harvard Keith there. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to avoid the words you're not supposed to say. Um, I do like sports ball things, though. So we had sports ball things yesterday with Sydney playing basketball. But uh, our list from last week, I don't know. If you weren't here, I'll explain quickly what we've, what we've been doing. Um, we really try to emphasize during this time that what happens isn't primarily dependent on the person standing here. It's not built on a personality. It's not built on human intelligence or human effort or human preparation or even human ability that, that we are praying for something more to happen during this time spiritually in people's hearts for people to really encounter God and the truth of his word in such a way that only the Spirit of God could bring about the things that we need most. And one of the ways that we try to emphasize that is that every week when we get together to study the Bible, we pray and we ask God to speak to us and teach us from his word. We read together, and then we ask this question, what does this teach about God? Because we believe that God is at the center of the whole Bible, and God's at the center of everything in your life and my life, and God's at the center of everything in all reality. And so we start with, what's this teach about God? And, and we really try to remind each other over and over and over that the same Spirit of God who comes and teaches during this time when we're gathered together, the same Word of God that we have to read together, is the same Spirit and the same Word that you and I have all the time, wherever we are, anywhere, anytime. And that that God wants to have a personal relationship with you where you are encountering him and coming to know him more and more every day, that he wants you to spend time in prayer, in his word, listening to what his spirit has to say to your heart, and that you aren't dependent on somebody to tell you all that, that, that God himself wants to interact with you, speak to you, wants you to know him, and even more, wants to reveal himself to you in a way that you can share that with other people, that you can help other people get to know him. And so... We're always trying to emphasize that because we believe it's what Jesus said to the church. That the very last thing Jesus says before he goes up to heaven is, you, church, like all of us, go and make disciples of all nations. Everywhere you go in the whole world, be making disciples. Be making more followers of Jesus. Like this is the thing that Jesus has called the church to do. So if we were to gather and, and do this time in a way that what we do right now doesn't equip you and better prepare you and better help you to go and make disciples, then we're really missing the point of this time. And so we're always trying to emphasize that, that what we do here, we would love for you to be able to leave and do the same thing in your personal life, in your relationship with God, and do the same thing with other people in your relationship with them and help them have a relationship with God. That, that would help you grow as a disciple and help you make other disciples. So we're always doing that but we kind of took it up to another level last week. And I just said, like, just to make it as fair as possible, because when 
you know, when you're out there every day in your personal devotional time and you open up the Bible to wherever you are, like, I don't assume that you've spent a whole week studying that passage and preparing for 20 hours to get ready for whatever you're, like, you're opening up and you're reading something fresh in that moment. Or when you encounter somebody and, and you have this conversation at work and you're at lunch break and you realize, oh, this is a spiritual conversation and I need to pray with this person and this would be a great time for us to read the Bible together and for us to ask, what does God have to say right now out of his word in this moment that, that you haven't prepared in one sense for 20 hours for that? And so it's not fair in some ways for me to spend all that time and come up here and do this, but okay, go do the same thing and it's not really the same thing. And so I'm trying to make this the same thing. And so what we've done is we've got our handy-dandy wheel that has been randomizing things for us. And Emory's going to come and help us spin it again here in just a minute. We've got our list of passages that you gave last week where it was just what, what's something you would really like to study. And whatever the wheel lands on, we're going to study. All of us fresh together right now, and we're going to say the Spirit of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. And, and as much as possible... I want to get out of the way, and he will speak today. And so whatever it lands on that matches here on the list, we're going to do that passage today. And we're going to trust that when we pray and we ask him to speak, that he has things to say, and you need to hear from him and not me anyway. Um, and, and so I've prayed again this week that he'll just guide us where he wants us to be, that he'll help me know what to say, and that he'll help me know what not to say. One thing we've got to do to get our list updated, though, uh, last week we landed on Mark 7, so we studied that one. And I, I was leaning toward this week just replacing the one, so we'll have 12 again. But here's first audience participation. Moving forward, do we keep working from this list, or do you want a fresh 12 every week? What do you think? Any thoughts? Same list. Same list? So keep working from this list and just add a new one? All right, good deal. All right, second piece of audience participation. Justin had to make uh, something for the, the website this week, like a sermon series thing I'm really bad about. Like, I don't even give t titles to my sermons, let alone to the series. Like, he always comes up with all that. And so he just did Wheel of Sermons. And he was like, so what do you think? You got a better idea? And so Keith and I gave him some really bad ideas. Uh, we were messaging back and forth on Slack. And we gave him, like, ten bad ideas. And he was like, thanks, this has been really helpful. And I was like, i tell you what. I'll ask everybody on Sunday morning. So do you have any better ideas for the sermon series, like for the website? Anything? I'm like, I'm putting you on the spot. If you think of it after, you can drop it in the, you can vote for that too, just like you voted for Carol to always be up here helping Keith out. Um, all right. No, nothing like just off the top of your head where you're like, that's it. Be thinking about it. Give us ideas for that because obviously I'm not doing anything. You're doing it all so you can name the series too. One more passage. What do you want? Is there one that you didn't get to shout out last week that you'd like to put on the list where you got a 1 in 12 chance of a study and say, all right, we got one. All right, Revelation. I was really shocked that it didn't get on here last week. And I would love to do this because, honestly, when we talk about, and we talk a lot about that if the Bible really is about God, if we come to the Bible focused on other things other than God, we're going to miss what the Bible's actually trying to say to us. But that if we start with who God is, if that's the foundation for everything, that everything else the Bible says grows out of who God is, that if you ask, what's this teach about God, it totally changes the way that you approach almost every passage and the truths that come out of it. And if I was going to pick anywhere in the Bible that is maybe the ultimate example of like a whole lot of people come and they get focused on all the details that aren't the main thing, it's Revelation. 
and that if you come and you ask, what's this teach about God? Like it reorients where you start, and then it gives you a lot better perspective to understand, okay, here's how these details fit into the truth about God. So that would be a great one. It would be a lot of fun. Now, obviously, we can't do 22 chapters of Revelation on. I mean, you all know I can, but I try hard not to do that to you. So we'll figure out, if it lands on that or Esther, we'll just figure out here in a minute how to handle that. But so our list this morning, Matthew 7, the, the Lord, Lord section, Esther, Revelation, Matthew 20 with the workers in the vineyard, Matthew 5, 43 and 44, which is a, a little snippet of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll probably expand that. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, Acts 2, Philippians 4, Luke 18, 22, James 2, 14, Psalm 139 and John 3, 16. And I did something this week that a lot of you may think, well, that's not very pastoral and that's okay. I'm not much of a pastor. Um, I didn't, like, even the ones you had on here, I didn't look at any of them. Like, I, I'm, I'm familiar with what some of them are, but I didn't sit down and read them. I, I really wanted to be as unprepped as you so that we can do this together and we can work through this together. So, let's spin the wheel now and see what we get, and then we'll go over our truths real quick. Emory, you want to come help us? I told Emory that we might take different volunteers, and she said she really wanted to spin the wheel again. And so she's, she may just spin every week for us here these next few weeks. All right, we ready? I think we were on five last week. We'll just stay on five this week. Got it? Give it a good spin. I'm going to hold it this week. Oh, two. What we got? Esther. A whole book. All right, good job, kiddo. Thank you. Oh, boy, what are we going to do? <laughs> Order pizza? Little Caesars is open. I bet they've already got hot and ready's rolling out. If anybody wants, it's like just right up here if you all want to run up there. That'll, that'll buy us an extra 45 minutes, right? Preschool workers are already really nervous. <laughs> if you go get Little Caesars, get some more goldfish, too. Um... All right, I don't think I'm going to put Esther on the screen. There's a whole lot of scrolling. So if you want to turn in your devices and your Bibles, and if you don't have one, I'll be reading this out loud. Um, I did, I was in a conversation Thursday, and we were talking about, what if we hit Esther on Sunday? And so I looked up on YouTube, like the audio reading, and it's 30 minutes to read the whole book out loud. So I feel like that we probably can't do that in a way that I respect your all's time at all. Um, this morning, but I think we can read some chunks, summarize some chunks, and get an idea of the whole story. And so let's do that in just a minute. Um, I do want to cover this again, just in case it's new for you, or just in case it hadn't really sunk in yet, because I think this is really significant for how we study the Bible, why we do this right now during this time, and, and hopefully why you would do this uh, in your daily life with Jesus and as you do start to disciple other people. We've got these three truths that we believe are, are a really accurate picture of what the Bible is. Like when, when we look at the Bible and allow God to tell us himself from the Bible what type of book it is and how we should be studying it. And it's not that you could come up with some other statements and other truths about the Bible that are helpful and descriptive, but I feel like these are three really foundational ones that are important to keep in mind. The first one is that the Bible is a spiritual book, you know, that that God himself is a spiritual being and that he has spoken 
by his Holy Spirit, revealed himself, that he has given us his words under his authority so that we can know him, and that when we come to the Bible, that God has spiritual purposes in mind for our hearts, and that he unleashes spiritual power by his Spirit. Just that all that emphasis would be, hey, this is more than academic, this is more than intellectual, this is more than human and this is more than external behavior. Like this is God doing a spiritual work in our hearts so that we can know him. And just to always keep that in mind. And then the next two truths, if I merge them right here, the Bible is one connected story about God. And ultimately, the, the, the main thing that God does in the whole Bible and in all of history is that he reveals who he is in Jesus. And I think the reason that these two are really, really helpful is that if you get in a section of the Bible and you're studying, and you have, like, you're like, I don't know. I don't understand what this chapter means, or I don't understand what this book means, or even I don't understand what this verse means. If you keep in mind that the Bible is one connected story that starts with God, God is always the main character throughout the whole thing, that everything that happens, God is involved in it, God's behind it, God's beneath it, God's around it, it's because of God, it's from God, it's to God. God's working through all types of different humans that come and go and change and they're in and out of the story and God's always there. If you remember that, that it's always about him and that it's one big connected story that these themes and, and, and these major strands of truth are overlapping through the whole thing. When you get in a spot and you're like, I don't, I don't understand that, the first thing to do is just zoom out a little bit. Like, set it in a bigger context, a bigger part of the story, and ask, how does other parts of the story help me understand this piece I don't understand? And then especially when you're like, I still don't get it, always bring it back to Jesus. Like, how is God revealing something about Jesus? How is God illustrating something about Jesus? How is God preparing us for Jesus? How is God telling us about, what's God showing us about himself in Jesus? And so those two pieces, to zoom out, and connect it to the larger story, and then also always see it in light of who Jesus is are really, really helpful wherever we land. And Esther's a great example today. This is an Old Testament story. This is before Jesus comes. And really interestingly, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't actually mention the name God. Can anybody else, can you confirm that? Is that yeah, Eric's nodding his head. I'm, it's the only Bible that, that book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name. And doesn't mean that he's not in there. It doesn't mean it's not part of his story, but I think that's, it's a great place for us to try this out. So based on these three truths about the Bible, we come down here and we say, okay, trying to keep those in mind, if the Bible is a spiritual book and we need the Spirit to do what only he can, then we're going to start by praying. We're going to depend on God in prayer. That we are not coming dependent on ourselves or on some human teacher or on our knowledge. We're depending on him because there's things that only he can do. So in just a minute, we're going to pray together. And we're going to ask God to teach us this morning. And to help us know exactly what to cover in this book and, and what to leave alone, to help me know that. And then we're going to focus on God because it's about God. If, if it's about God and we focus on something else, we've already missed it. And it, that is one of the biggest reasons why we get so confused sometimes and we miss so much when we're studying the Bible is because we come and we're either primarily focused on us and our life and what's going on, or we're focused on things going on in the world, or we're focused on other people that we disagree with, or we're just focused on, hey, I want more knowledge and more background and more details, and we miss God. And the whole thing's about him. So we're, we start with, what does this teach about God? That that is the foundation for everything we'll talk about. 
then we want our hearts to be changed by God. So it's not just, hey, what's this teach about God? I got 10 new truths this week. I can write them down in my journal. I can memorize them, and I've just stacked up some more knowledge about God. It's that we would know God in a way that we're actually encountering him, and he's working in our hearts, and he's changing us. And so on, on the heels of, okay, if this is truth, true about God, we come back and say, okay, God, if that's the truth about you, what do you want to say to my heart right now? What do you want to do in me right now? And then, if that's actually going to happen, God's the only one who can do it. Like, he's the only one who can bring about heart change. I can't do it for you, and I can't do it for me. You can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. But he can. And so we say, all right, we're going to pray again. And these things that God has said to us, we're going to ask him to be doing those in us by his spirit and to do them in us in such a way that we're able to then go and share that with others and help others know him the way that he's helping us know him. So that's what we're going to do right now. I don't have Esther on here today, so we're going to scroll down here below our truths and be ready. Let's pray together and let's give Esther a shot. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for bringing us to the book of Esther today. Please teach us what you want us to know. Help us to see you. Teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You've got something on your device you can look at. What's this teach about God? We're going to do it this way. Esther chapter 1 is the intro. And the, the Jews, who are God's people, are in exile right now. They have not listened to God. They've not obeyed God. They've worshipped false idols. They've turned to everything you can imagine other than God. And eventually, because of that, the land that God had given them, which we know today is modern-day Israel, they lost that land. There were other nations that conquered them, carried them off as prisoners and slaves. And so they're in exile, not in their land. And so we have the setting here at verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So there you've got your world powers, uh, Persia, Media, the, the king Xerxes ruling over, and a lot of the Jews at this point are scattered, like all over the world, not in Israel. And what happens in this first chapter, at this banquet, is that Xerxes calls in his queen, Vashti, and basically he's got all these really important people, like all the political leaders from all over the world, and he's going to show off his queen and brag about who he's got. And she's not having it. And she won't come in. Like she, she disobeys his command and won't come in, and, and you know, she won't, won't be you know, his, his little trophy wife. Well, all the nobles and these men in the room say, hey, what are you going to do about that? Because if she does that to the king, what do you think our wives are going to do to us? Look, none of this is a good thing, okay? This, these aren't God's people. They don't love God. They don't know God. The Bible's not endorsing any of this. The Bible's just saying this is the reality about what human hearts look like apart from God. And so what Xerxes says is, fine. If she's not going to do what I say, she's not going to be queen anymore. So he deposes her and kicks her out. But now Xerxes doesn't have a queen 
and he wants a queen. And so he does what a king does, and he says, bring me all the most beautiful women you can find in the land, and we're going to have a year-long bachelor show. I mean, like, this is what happens in chapter 2. Well, out of all those women that get selected, one of them is a Jew. Now, nobody knows that she's a Jew, and that is Esther, who they end up calling Esther in this book. Now, Esther has an uncle named Mordecai, who's also a Jew, secretly, because it wasn't good to be a Jew during that time. Um, And Mordecai keeps advising her throughout this process on what to do. Well, it ends up that just coincidentally, can you believe this would happen, such a lucky coincidence, Esther gets chosen to be the next queen. And so this Jew, in secret, becomes the queen of this country where they're supposed to be slaves and prisoners and exiles. So now Esther's the queen. And then if you look at the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 19, when Mordecai's hanging around the palace trying to give Esther advice, like he's kind of outside the palace walls, it says, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Two of the king's officers, Bigthana and Teresh, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate the king. So now we've got an assassination plot against the king. Mordecai overhears it. Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So here's what's happened so far. The queen won't come into the king's banquet. King kicks the queen out. King picks a new queen. Just happens to be this girl, Esther, who's a Jew, but nobody knows it. Her uncle, Mordecai, is close to the palace, trying to give her advice. Hears about the assassination attempt on the king. Tells Queen Esther, who tells the king, saves his life. And the king has them make a note. Hey, Mordecai saved my life. All right? Chapter 3. Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. Haman is one of the main advisors to the king. And Haman is one of those guys who he's not the king, but he wants everybody to treat him like he is the king. And so let's just read the first four verses here of chapter 3. After these events, after the assassination tip, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And so he said, I'm not going to bow to anybody except for God because I'm a Jew. Haman gets outraged, like his pride's injured. Everybody else shows him the respect that he thinks he deserves, but Mordecai won't. And so he starts to launch a plan of, I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to find a way to kill Mordecai. But that's not enough. If Mordecai won't bow to me because he's a Jew, then I'm going to kill all the Jews. And so now we've got secret Jew, Queen Esther, married to the king. Mordecai, who has said, the reason I won't bow to this noble is because I'm a Jew and I only bow to God. And so that noble says, then I'm killing all the Jews. Chapter 4, Mordecai comes to Esther and begs for help. He says, you're in this place of power now. Me and all of your people are about to be 
assassinated, wiped out, because we won't bow to Haman. And so, let's, in chapter 4, after he asked Esther to go in to see the king on their behalf, to rescue them, pick up in verse 9, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. So Mordecai says, hey, you've got to go to the king on our behalf and try to rescue us. And Esther says, I can't go into the king. I, don't, I know you think that because I'm the queen I can do whatever I want, but I don't have access to him unless he asks me to come to him. And if you approach the king when he hasn't asked for you and he's in a bad mood, he kills you. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So he hasn't asked for me for a whole month. If I go and he doesn't want me to be there, he's going to kill me. The only chance I've got is if I go in, he raises up his gold scepter and he says, hey, it's good to see you, I'm glad you're here, then I'm okay. But I don't know till I see his face. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And then here's the really famous verse in Esther, if you're familiar with it all. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This is why God put you here, is what Mordecai say in there. Esther responds in verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Esther says, I agree. And this is in God's hands. He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can help us. So fast and pray, and then I'm going to go in and see the king. So in chapter 5, Esther goes in to see the king. He's happy to see her. He raises his scepter. He welcomes her in. And he asks her, what do you want? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. That's verse 3. And she says, if it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I prepared for him. So she prepares this first banquet. The king and Haman, who Haman's the enemy, they come. But then she doesn't tell him what she wants. She says, if it pleases the king, come again tomorrow. Let's do this again. So first banquet, second banquet. Well, when Haman leaves after the first banquet, here at the end of chapter 5, he sees Mordecai, and it just makes him angry all over again. He's so mad that this guy isn't giving him the respect that he deserves. And so he's fuming about it, and he gets some advice from the other people who say, hey, build a gallows 75 feet high and hang Haman on it. And everybody can see that this is what happens to somebody when he doesn't, like, when he doesn't respect you the way that he should. So Mordecai's, I mean, Haman's really, ha I got that backwards, hang Mordecai on it. Haman's really happy to do that. Like, this is a great idea. This makes me feel a lot better, so he hasn't built the gallows. All right, chapter 6, though. This is between the two banquets. So they've come the first day. Esther doesn't say what she wants. She waits patiently, getting ready for the next banquet. And just, just like, hey, out of nowhere, Esther accidentally got chosen. And out of nowhere, uh, Mordecai's just accidentally in place to hear about the assassination attempt. And, and out of nowhere, Esther's in the right place to rescue the Jews. And out of nowhere, chapter 6, that night the king could not sleep. Just what do you know? Some night the king can't sleep. And so he says, you know what I like to do when I can't sleep? Go get a book about me and read it to me. <laughs> I like me some me. So they start reading, 
out of his chronicles of his reign, and they just accidentally flip to the story where Mordecai saved his life. And the king says in verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And they say, well, nothing's been done for him. The king says, who's in the court right now? This is where it gets so good. Like, this just, it makes me smile that God's like this. Now, Haman, what do you know, accidentally had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. So Haman's coming in and be like, hey, I built the gallows. Can I kill Mordecai? The king's like, hey, find somebody who can honor Mordecai for saving my life. So that's the dynamic we've got going on. His attendants tell the king, Haman's standing in the court. The king says, bring him in. Haman enters and the king says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And the guy like Haman's like, well, who would the king want to honor except me? <laughs> so what, what do I want the king to do for me? Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe to the, that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. Hey, king, give me your robe and your horse and let people bring me through the streets and talk about how great I am. The king says, go at once. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You'll surely come to ruin. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So here's banquet number two, night number two. This time they're dining together. The king asked Esther, what, did you, what do you want? Why did you have me and Haman come and have a second dinner with you? Verse 3, the queen, then Queen Esther answered, If I've found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. All I'm asking is don't let me die. You know, and the king has no idea what's going on right here. And spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. If he was just going to make us slaves, I wouldn't even come to you, but he's going to kill us all. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? This is a bad moment for Haman. Like There's three of you in the room, and she says, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king, in a rage, leaves the room. Haman falls down and grabs hold of Esther to beg her for his life. Well, the king comes back in, thinks that Haman's doing something a whole lot worse than begging for his life, and so then he declares Haman's going to be killed. And they take Haman, and they hang him on the gallows that he himself had built for Mordecai. And then in chapters 9 and 10, the king releases a new edict that they can't kill the Jews and that the Jews have a right to defend themselves against their enemies if anybody tries to attack them. And the book ends with the Jews are protected, 
The Jews are rescued. God's people aren't annihilated. And here, chapter 10 is really short. We'll just end here so that we get the conclusion. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. So Mordecai gets promoted all the way to second most important in the land, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And so that's where that story ends, that section of the Bible. Now, I know that's a lot, and I know that even telling it that way, we covered a whole lot. But what's that teach about God? What are things throughout that story that stand out to you Truths about God. Oh, okay. That's a good start. God can deal with your enemies a lot better than you can. You know, and, and we could go a lot of directions right here with application, but I want to go to one that we go to a lot and just say, so pray. Tell him what you need. Ask him for help. Trust him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And trust that, that his solutions and his wisdom will be better than yours. Trust that in his wisdom that he knows where justice needs to fall and where grace needs to be given and look to him. Like, if you will look to him instead of looking at your enemy or at yourself or at your circumstance, he will lead you where you need to be and the responses that you need to have. But I guarantee you, whatever it is, wherever it falls on the spectrum, whatever that response needs to be, he knows better than you do and he can handle it better than you do. Will you come with the humility where you say, God, I need you. I need what only you know. I need what only you can do. I need you to give what only you can give. I need your help in ways like I can't solve this and I can't fix all this. And as soon as I try to get in and do it my way, my heart gets dirty. Like I bring in my own flesh and my own sin and my own self-centeredness and I mess the whole thing up. I need it to be you and you alone. God can deal with your enemies a lot better than you can. And then especially when we shift the conversation to spiritually, this spiritual battle that we're in, the fact that this spiritual realm exists that we can't see, but it impacts everything that we do and everything that's going on in the world and going on in our life, that your spiritual enemies, like, they have resources you don't have. They are stronger than you in the spiritual realm, except for this. God has promised that he can handle them. And he is for you, and he is with you, and he lives inside of you. That Jesus has conquered your spiritual enemies. That you aren't left alone to fight this battle on your own. You aren't left alone to do this in your own strength. As a matter of fact, God's designed the thing where you can't do it in your own strength. But you can do it in his strength. You can turn to him. and He, he wants you to learn to turn to him, to depend on him. He wants you to know the ways that you need him. It's why Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, he is the source of your life, your spiritual life, your spiritual power, and these spiritual battles that you face. You need Jesus. You need God's grace. You need God's spirit more than you need anything in your own ability. So God can deal with your enemies a lot better than you can. That's a great one. What else? What other truths about God stand out to you?
Mm. God doesn't need us to bring deliverance. And yeah, 414 is when, when Esther's like, I don't know if I can go and see the king or not. And Phil read it, but just in case you're online and you couldn't hear it or if you couldn't hear him in here. For if you remain silent this time, what he doesn't say is, hey, if you remain silent, God's plans are going to fall apart and God's people are going to be destroyed. And remember that promise that God made to Abraham? It'll be over and God won't be able to keep his promise. It all depends on you, Esther, so you better do the right thing. It's not what he says. <laughs> if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God will keep his promise. God will accomplish his purposes. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. That this is God's work. God's going to finish his work. He wants to use you. Like he, he is inviting you and offering you this great position of grace to be part of what he's doing, to be used by him. If you trust him and follow him, he'll accomplish his purposes through you. If you don't trust him and follow him, he'll accomplish his purposes without you. He'll accomplish them either way. The question is, will you be part of it? And, and maybe God doesn't need us to bring deliverance because God brings deliverance. But we could say also, it's not a question of whether God will accomplish his purposes. He will. He'll keep his promises. He will do what he has said. It's just a question of whether we will be part of it. Will we listen to him? Will we trust him? Will we get to experience the grace and the joy of him using us to do what he said he's going to do? He is going to do it. It, it, like, and there, listen, there is great confidence that can come from that. God is going to accomplish this. It, it's going to happen. And you trust him and you follow him. He's going to use you in the ways that he promises. So there's great confidence. There's also great freedom and relief and peace where it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. But you're not the guarantee for why it's going to happen. He's the guarantee for why it's going to happen. And then there's also great humility in this. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And if you come to this like everything depends on you, first of all, you're not learning to trust him and his grace the way that you should. And then secondly, you're putting this burden and this pressure and this weight of expectations on yourself that you can't carry. Like you can't pull this thing off where everything depends on you. You're not able to do it. I'm not able to do it. And it's like God is standing here saying, I'm not asking you to do it. I'm asking you to trust me to do it. Don't do it for me. Let me do it through you. What else? Another truth about God. Mm. That's awesome. Yes. When we don't know what to do, There's, a, there's an N in there, I promise. When we don't know what to do, do, I'm, I'm going to say what we know God tells us to do. Like, Esther's like, I don't know. 
I don't know if I can go and see the king. He may kill me. I don't know how this thing's going to turn out. There's a lot of uncertainty for her in that moment. But she knows this. Like, she knows that what Mordecai is telling her is right. She knows that it's a word from God. She knows that she's supposed to go in and be willing to risk her life for her people. Like, she knows that. She also knows that to fast and to pray, is to, that, that is expressing dependence on God. That's expressing faith. Basically what you're saying when you fast is, God, I need you more than I need this food. God, I need your spiritual strength and your spiritual nourishment and your spiritual help more than I need this physical strength and spiritual nourishment and physical help. And so for a little while, I'm going to let this thing go just as a way of really emphasizing and saying with my heart, I need you more and I'm looking to you more and I'm more desperate for you. And so God, please hear me right now. Please hear how weak, and just like I'm weak physically because I haven't been eating food, I'm weak spiritually, and I need you to do what I can't do. And so she knows that. She knows what faith in God looks like. She knows what it is to fast and pray. She knows she's in a situation where God's the only one who can fix it. There's a whole lot of things she does know. And so she does what she knows. Like she continues to look to God. She continues to trust God. Instead of saying, well, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this, and I'm going to stare at that the whole time. And I'm going to be paralyzed by the things I don't know. Instead of that, she peels her eyes off of the uncertainty and she looks to what's certain. And she knows who God is. She knows that God's a rescuer. She knows that God's a deliverer. She knows that God's a savior. She knows that God has made promises to his people and that God is a promise keeper. And so she comes and says to fast and pray and ask God to do what only he can do. Like focus on what you do know about God. And whatever you do, let it be driven by that. And it's also great that she's basically saying, hey, I'm not the solution. My answer isn't, I'll get real, real pretty, and I'll put on some really nice smelling perfume, and I'll do everything I can with my feminine wiles to make, to make Xerxes want me to come into his presence. It's not what she says. She says, I'll fast and pray for three days. You know what you look like after you fasted for three days? Like, this is not the human answer for coming into the king's presence, Right? But she says, I need God's answer and not my answer. I need God's help and not what I can do on my own. This is dependence and faith. And she's saying, the best thing we can do is throw ourselves completely on God, and then whatever happens, happens. If I throw myself on God and he lets me die, so be it. What else? God gives us courage? Yeah. God puts Esther in this position that requires great courage, and then God, especially speaking through Mordecai, leaving Mordecai in her life, encourages her and strengthens her and gives her in the moment the courage that she needs to do what she needs to do. Carol, do you have something too? God can work through any circumstance no matter how outrageous it seems. Absolutely. God will accomplish his will in ways that we can't even dream up. (laughs) (laughs) And even then it wouldn't have been this good, would it? God will accomplish his will accomplish his will in ways we can't even dream up. 
Both, yeah, like, like, you just think about how wild this whole story is. Like, the events that happen, the timing of the events, if you were to lay odds on them, like, nobody's taken those odds that all these things happen this way. First of all, you know, like, none of us are laying it out that way. Secondly, none of us are like, hey, this would be a great way for God to protect his people. Let them get carried off into exile. Let them get persecuted because they won't bow down to this godless noble. Let it look like they're all going to be destroyed. And then at the very last minute, just don't let the king sleep one night. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's what you're offering, God? A sleepless night for the king? He's like, yeah, that's all I need. (laughs) I mean, like, we would... We would never dream it up this way. But then when God works this way and weaves these things together and pulls these pieces that, that we didn't even see him in. And I'm going to add this one right now because it fits right here. And like, it's, it's what I see when God's name isn't mentioned, but you see him at work in the whole book, pulling off stuff nobody else can, is God is at work even when you don't see him at all. That God being at work doesn't depend on you being aware of it. God being at work depends on the fact that he is a sovereign, wise, all-powerful, ever-present God who is working out his purposes, sometimes directly and overtly in ways that you can see him and be thankful, and sometimes behind the scenes in such subtle and small ways that you've got no idea what's just about to come. That was right around the corner when he takes these pieces. And this stretches. You think about how long this stretches from the time that Mordecai heard about the assassination plot and it gets recorded in the annals and it just sits there and nothing's done about it, nothing's done about it, nothing's done about it to the night that the king can't sleep and it just happens to be the night before Esther's going to come and say, here's what Haman wants to do to Mordecai and the Jews and then God just... And here here it all comes together. All these things that you didn't see and you didn't know that he was doing and you didn't realize he was there in those moments. And he was there the whole time. And he was bringing it together the whole time. So yeah, God can work through any circumstance, no matter how outrageous it seems. God will accomplish his will in ways we can't even dream up. God is at work even when you don't see him at all. Even when it doesn't look like his name's in the story, he's all over the story. What else? Jesus is willing to die so I didn't have to. Let's say it our fun way. This is what Darren's saying. Jesus is a better Esther. Esther is a she's a hero, humanly. It's like she's courageous, she risked her life for her people, and they're saved. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't just say, yeah, I'm willing to go die so that they can be safe. Jesus went and died so that you and I could be safe. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm going to walk into the king's presence and maybe he'll raise that scepter and I'll be okay. Like there's a risk that he won't, but maybe it'll be okay. Jesus is in the garden sweating drops of blood because he knows it's not going to be okay. And he walks in anyway. 
Like he hundred before the foundation of the world, he and the Father knew what was going to happen. And he walks straight into it and he says, I will die so you don't have to. I will die so the king can save his people. Esther's a great story right here, but Esther is a shadow and a whisper pointing you forward to Jesus. Like as great as she is, as great as that moment is, it is just a fraction of what Jesus has done for you. The courage that Jesus had, the the willingness to sacrifice himself, to give himself, the, the willingness to walk into absolute danger. Like he knows, and it's not just like, oh yeah, I'm walking in to, to King Xerxes' presence and if he doesn't want me to be there, he'll kill me. That's bad. But it's no, I'm walking in to the presence of my Father, the God of the universe, with all of your sin on my shoulders and I know what his wrath is going to do to that sin. Like I know the way, spiritually, that he's going to annihilate me. And this is Jesus saying this, not me. I know, and I'm walking in anyway so that you can be saved. Esther's great. Jesus is a better Esther. What else stands out to you? Mm, Yeah, and that's, that's both a truth about God and a great application for us. Pride goes before the fall, but God honors the humble. Like we see Haman just building himself up and exalting himself, and what he ends up doing is this gallow that he builds out of his pride is the gallow that kills him. And then we see both Mordecai and Esther, out of humility, using the position that God has given them for others instead of for themselves. Not for self-promotion, not for self-protection, not to, to gain for themselves or hide themselves, but but to rescue others. And in that humility, that's what humility is. Humility isn't that you think lowly of yourself. Humility is that you just don't think of yourself. Like high self-esteem, not humility. Low self-esteem, not humility. Because both of those are self-esteem. You're thinking about yourself. Humility is you forget about yourself out of your love for God and your love for other people. And their focus on God's people, like they've been turned out from themselves and focused on others. And in that humility, God honors them and exalts them. God blesses humility because, listen, humility is the only way you can see him. Because he is above you. He is greater than you. He is higher than you. And only someone who bows in humility and looks up can see him. Like when we puff ourselves up and we're busy in our pride and self-importance looking down on everybody else, like if I'm looking down on you, do you know who I'm not seeing? The person who's above me. Like as long as I'm looking down on you because of how highly I think of myself, I can't see God. Humility is the only way to know God. And so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, humility is the only way to know God. How do I get humble? Ask God. Ask God to give you the humility of Jesus as his spirit lives in you. Confess to him that you are self-centered. Confess to him that you are selfish. Confess to him how much of your world revolves around you. And ask him to change your heart. Ask him to turn you back out. Like you're turned in on yourself. Ask him to turn you back out toward him and toward others. Ask him to do a spiritual work in your heart that rescues you from you. Pride goes before the fall, but God honors the humble. Do you want to give us one more, anybody? Yes. God puts us right where he needs us. 
to be, whether we know it or not, Ooh. and whether we like it or not, that is so true, <laughs> to accomplish his purposes. And so again, if you want to move to application of what God may be saying to your heart right now, go where God takes you. Follow Jesus where he leads you. Like you don't have to have all the answers of, hey, here's where we're going and here's how it's going to turn out and here's why I'm taking you there. Like Jesus doesn't necessarily need to tell you all that. What you need to know is this is where he's going and I'm following him. And if I follow him, he will get me to where I need to be. When those moments come, he'll have me where I need to be if I'm looking at him and following him. And so it's okay, listen, it's okay if you don't have this whole thing figured out. It's okay if you don't know every answer and every detail. It's okay if you don't feel like you know what he wants you to do every day. Stop looking at the what and look at who. Look at him, like who he is. That's what matters. You follow him. You follow him today, today. And you follow him tomorrow, tomorrow. And you follow him Tuesday, Tuesday. And you keep looking at Jesus and trust on whatever day it is that you need to be wherever you need to be. He'll have you there on that day for his purposes. Because he knows. He knows what you don't know. And he can do what you can't do. Let's end with this. We, we had that Jesus is a better Esther. And that one's great. The other one that kind of stood out to me as I was reading the section, I think I may have been describing it to you. Of She's trying to come into the king, but is he going to want me or not? Is he going to welcome me? Will he raise that scepter or not? And so it also stood out to me to see Jesus this way. Jesus is also the better king. He's the better Esther, but he's the better king. You know, the king initially agrees to Haman's idea of, hey, let's kill all the Jews. Haman brings that in. The king's like, if that's what you want to do, do it. And so I want you to think about this. Here's this king saying, yeah, kill God's people. And then Jesus shows up, and he's the true king. And he says, I'll die so that God's people won't be killed. Now here's, the, here's the king saying, I'm going to use my power to kill these people because they're not honoring my nobles. They're not honoring my nobles and not honoring me the way they should. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to die to rescue these people from the fact that they haven't honored me the way that they should. I'm not going to kill them for dishonoring me. I'm going to die so they can be rescued from dishonoring me. And then even more, like, like you think about this law like, where the king's like, don't you dare come into my presence unless I ask you to. And if you do, and I don't want you to be there, I'll kill you. Like, no one has access to that king. And Jesus shows up as the king of kings. Like if anyone wanted to have the authority and power to say, don't you dare. Don't you dare, filthy, rotten, sinner, peasant, don't you dare come into my presence. It would be King Jesus. And whereas this king says nobody has access, King Jesus says everybody has access. Whosoever will come, come. Come into my presence. Like he's already raised the scepter forever. He's already inviting you in. He's saying, come, come, and I will receive you. Come, and I will welcome you. Come, and I will love you. Come, and I will extend this to you forever. Like Jesus never turns away anyone 
who comes to him. Ever. And nobody deserves to come to him. Like with the king, it's like Esther walks in, the king's like, you know what? She's been a good queen. I really like her. She's really pretty. Yeah, you, you measure up. Come on in. That's not the way it is with Jesus. Like none of us deserve to come to him. None of us measure up. We have all rebelled against him and sinned against him and turned away from him. We are the reason he had to die. And he says, oh, come on. Come in. I love you and I welcome you. That's the king that you have. A better king. A king that doesn't look and say, are you good enough? If you're good enough, you can come in. He looks and he says, I know you're not good enough, but I love you anyway. And so I've done everything that needs to be done. Now come on in. Don't try to get yourself all prettied up. Don't put on your best smelling perfume. Come to me the way you are and let me love you. Jesus is the better Esther. Jesus is the better king. And this is what God has said to his people. This is how God keeps his promises to his people through Jesus. The better Esther, the better king, the one who always loves you, the one who always welcomes you, the one who's always saying, come to me. And so we're going to have a time of worship right now, partly to thank God for this, to praise him, that this is who he is, that, that these are the stories that he tells throughout history, in his word, and throughout your life and my life, that this is the type of God he is, and these are the type of stories he tells. We're going to thank him for that. But then also, some of you may need to come right now, maybe just to pray, maybe to pray with somebody, or maybe to say, I know that Jesus is saying, come to me. Got dark, didn't it? <laughs> it's like, we can just keep going and pretend that didn't happen, you know, or we can just go, yeah, it got dark. We'll wait for a second. All right, I can see you now. All right. And Jesus saying, come to me. And you're saying, I've never really done that in my life. Like, I've never taken that step to say, I want to start following Jesus. And it's a decision you can make right now, but it's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-moment thing. It's I want to follow Jesus today and tomorrow. I want to be trusting Jesus, ongoing, following Jesus, ongoing for the rest of my life. And I need him to do by his spirit what only he can do. So we're going to have people down here to talk with you, pray with you. And we're going to ask you right now, that you'll sing and worship with us. I'm going to pray for us right now, and then that's what we're going to do. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus gave his life to save us when we deserve to die. And thank you that Jesus welcomes us into his presence when we could never, ever deserve to be there. Open our eyes to see you more in Jesus right now and to love you and trust you and follow you. Please work in our hearts as only you can. And I pray for those in this room that need to know Jesus in this way. Draw, draw us to you. Help us trust you in this way. Thank you, Father. Thank you that this whole thing is your story and that you are telling it better than we ever could. Let us see more of it, Father. Keep telling this same great story of redemption over and over and over in our lives and in this church and let us be part of it. Strengthen our faith and our courage that we'll be part of it where you have us right now. We thank you for your love and your 
grace. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us.